Well, good morning, Hope Fellowship. My name is Jeff Brewer. I'm one of the pastors here, and I'm going to introduce Sean Adair here in just a second. But uh, a few announcements for us. First, um, thank you for braving the ice and everything to come out here this morning. We know many probably had to stay at home because of kind of being iced into their house. Actually, I thought I would outsmart the ice last night by putting a blanket over our car, and then the blanket froze to the car. So now I have pieces of blanket everywhere So uh, on top of the car. But um, we all made it here. It's good to be here together. Uh, just a few announcements to remind you of this coming week on Thursday. This last week we prayed on Wednesday night. Uh, this coming Thursday we're going to be praying again as a church. We're calling everyone to come to the church office. That's the downstairs worship space that we used throughout uh, the pandemic. And so we invite you to come and we'll pray together. Bring your kids. It's an opportunity as well for them to hear God's people praying. And so that again is this coming Thursday night and it's at 630 at the church office. Also next week we're going to be moving back to the big auditorium which and sometimes it feels like well this one fits us better and it does in, in many ways um, but it's, in a lot of ways it's better for us for the school for us to be over there on that side and just with the, the plays and things and so uh, if you're on the setup and teardown cruise you'll probably get an email this week letting you know that there's probably some extra hands that are needed to kind of get set back up for the big auditorium over there and so um, well, I'm very pleased uh, to introduce Sean here this morning, and Sean has been a part of what we've kind of informally been calling the preaching cohort that over the last 14 or 15 months, uh, I've been meeting uh, along with a group of about six men, and we've been talking about the process of studying God's word, the process of sermon preparation. They've given sermons to this small group, received feedback and encouragement. And so what I'm so encouraged about is that there are men within our church who don't do this for a full-time living, and yet God is using them powerfully to preach God's word. And so we wanted to start out this year with four of these men preaching in the month of January from Paul's prayers and praises from the book of Philippians this morning and next week, and then from Ephesians the, the following two, week, and so, two weeks. And so Sean and his wife Erin, they serve as mission group leaders and have for years. They used to serve with crew in the country of Croatia. And so we are so glad that he can preach God's words to us this morning. And so welcome, Sean. Let's give him a welcome. Thank you, Jeff. Um, and as Jeff said, I'm, I'm grateful that you all are here. I mean, I almost thought about not coming <laughs> this morning, but figured that'd probably be an unwelcome surprise for Jeff. Um, well, I, it has really been a pleasure over the past, gosh, I guess over a year now, 15 months, to be part of the preaching cohort and get to spend some time with these men. And I can say it, it certainly made me much more appreciative of the work that Jeff and Jared and the elders do week over week to, to bring us the word. So thank you, gentlemen. Well, let me, let me pray real quick. And then we'll read the text. It's Philippians 1, uh, verses 1 through 11, and then we can jump in. Father, we are, we are grateful for the opportunity to express our love and our need for you, corporately as one body. We are grateful that we can trust you with all the things happening in our busy lives. Would you still our hearts this morning so that we can listen to your word and enjoy your presence? May we walk away from this place more in love with you as a result of our time together. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Let's read the text. So Philippians chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. The word of the Lord. 
Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. And it's right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it's my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Amen. Uh, well, Aaron and I have three young boys, uh, Cooper, Tucker, and Liam, five, three, and one. So you can probably imagine it's a little bit of a crazy house at times. Uh, it's filled with wrestling and laughter and food fights and, well, not really, but there's a lot of food on the ground most of the time. Um, and uh, a lot of tears, a lot of boo-boos, hugs, exhaustion, sin, grace, love. Uh, and occasionally, I look at those cute little rascals and I can't help but, but think about what will their future look like? What will they look like as teenagers? What sports will they enjoy? What job will they get? Um, who will they date and marry and will they have kids? And I look at uh, my own life and look at those things. I look at my own uh, family and memories and triumphs and joys, my own sin, my own shame, my own seasons of neglect to the Lord, my own moments of gospel, clarity, and relief, forgiveness. And I look back at the boys and I think, wow, gosh, with, with such tender excitement and joy, I think you have no idea what's in store for you. Looking forward to God's faithfulness to them. And I think that same expectant joy and love captures the tone with which Paul writes Philippians and prays this prayer. He, in many ways, is a passionate father for this church and is eager for them to realize and experience the fullness of God's salvation for them. So Paul planted the, this church in Philippi on his second missionary journey. The first one, he spent a lot of time with Barnabas in Turkey, modern-day Turkey, or basically Asia at the time, and then planted a lot of churches, went back to Israel, and then said, hey, we're going to do another journey, another missionary journey, right? And the purpose of it is going to be to strengthen those churches that we had just planted in Asia. However, when Paul gets to the very northwestern tip of, of Asia, Turkey, uh, God calls him by means of a vision of a man in Macedonia to go into Macedonia, so think Europe, right? It's just north of Greece, and preach the word. So he does. So he goes over, and the very first major city that, he, that he, he gets to in that district is Philippi. So we can surmise that this is probably the first church in Europe, definitely first church, obviously, Paul planted in Europe. Um, and it ended up being an extremely healthy and generous church. Um, and Paul really only had to, to address some minor disunities for the church. Uh, and the brothers and sisters in Philippi were uh, really big supporters and labored alongside Paul um, in his tenure there, as well as for the gospel as a whole. And they also later supported Paul financially in some very significant ways. So it's clear that Paul has a very tender heart for this church. And he sends this letter to them while in prison, 
filled with love and encouragement. And at the beginning of this letter, Paul offers this, this encouragement and this prayer, all of it leading towards Paul's desire that the Philippians would continue to learn to live as mature Christians. So as Jeff said, we're, we're looking at Paul's praises and, and prayer, praises and prayers over the next few weeks. This, we're specifically looking, looking at Paul's prayer for progress, essentially. And we can gather a number of things from this section, but what I want to focus on is answering the question, how are we to pray for our own Christian maturity? And I'm curious, when you hear that question, how does that make you feel? I've got a suspicion that many of us feel a measure of discouragement when thinking about our own growth, or maybe a lack thereof. Like, gosh, I wish I'd made more progress by now. All right? Or maybe... You feel a weariness when thinking about your, your future, facing different temptations and trials. My aim today is to quell that anxiety and that sadness and to bolster you with God's grace, his ongoing care for you. So how, how are we to pray for our own Christian maturity? This is what we see in the passage. Since God is passionate about bringing us to Christian maturity, we can pray with expectant hope and confidence. Since God is passionate about bringing us to Christian maturity, we can pray with expectant hope and confidence. To see that, I want to look at two primary things in our passage. Where does Paul get his hope that we see in his prayer? And secondly, what does Paul actually ask for in his prayer? So where does Paul get the hope we see in his prayer? And then what does Paul actually ask for in that prayer? So let's let's start with where Paul gets his hope that we see so clearly in, the, in this prayer for, for maturity, for growth. In verse 6, Paul says this, And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. So before we unpack what this means, I, I think many of you are probably rightly asking, how can Paul be so sure of this? Right? He actually gives us the answer for that in the verses prior to that statement and just after. In verse 7, he says this, It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. Now that sentiment is echoed in verses 3 through 5 when Paul says, quote, uh, his, he, sorry, he, sorry, he expresses his deep gratefulness when he says, because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. So the Philippians were standing alongside Paul for the labor of the gospel, right? And Paul takes these signs as indicators of saving faith. So essentially, the Philippians have placed their faith in the Lord. Jesus is going to actually provide for them their atonement. And this is expressed through their affection for and their concern for, call, for, for Paul, excuse me, and their desire to see God glorified through the dissemination of the gospel, He's not sure of this because they're some group of super-Christians. They're just simply Christians. However, it does seem that they should be commended for their love for Paul and their concern for the gospel, right? So they're Christians. That's what we see here. That's Paul's confidence. Therefore, Paul can say that they, that's why he can say verse 6, right? And I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. So, Let's, let's approach the text by asking of it a few different questions, and then we'll see how this relates to Paul's prayer later on. First question, who's taking the action here? Who's taking the action here? Is it the Philippians? Is it Paul? Is it you? No, it's God. God is the initiator. 
God begins the good work. God began the good work in you. So then what is this good work that has begun? So what is this good work that has begun? Broadly speaking, I think we can say salvation. And if you look at the whole of Scripture, we can see this defined first, at, first just by understanding what sin is, right? Sin's not just missing the mark. Well, I'm, you know, I'm generally good, but I've got a few areas I need to work on. At least I haven't killed anyone. That's, that's probably the, the most common answer that I would get in college when I talk to people. Sin, I think, is a, it's a lot more, ac- it's more accurately defined, I think, as being on opposite sides of the war from God. We're in, we're in a different faction. We're on a different team. We're rebels. The presence of sin is the issue. We needed to be saved from that status of sin and its penalty of death. And God says he was the one to begin that work. Again, he was the initiator. We see how this was begun later on in Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 through 8. Paul says this, Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, didn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. This is how God began that work. Jesus lived the perfect life we should have lived and died the death we should have died. Well then, how has it only begun? How has this good work only begun, and what does it mean to be brought to completion? This is a dynamic seen throughout Scripture, I think popularly referenced as the already but not yet type of dynamic. So the already but not yet. We are already saved, but we are not yet saved. So let's look briefly at already. In Christ, your sin is declared punished once and for all, and you are declared righteous. This is accomplished in Christ's death and resurrection. In 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21, we see this. For our sake... He made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So for our sake, that's for us, he, God, made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin, that's our sin, so that in him, united in Christ, we might become the righteousness of God. Not a marginally, slightly more righteous or disciplined Christian, the righteousness of God. That's the perfection of Christ. That's the blamelessness of Christ. That's how we stand accepted before God. It's as if every sin you've ever done in your life was written on one massive scroll, and at the bottom of that scroll was your name, your signature in red ink, right? And then Jesus comes, and he scratches out your signature, writes his own name, and then hands you his scroll, which you open it, and it's all of his perfection and blamelessness. That's how your sin is destroyed on that cross, and it's how you are adopted as a son or daughter. Later in this letter, Paul touches again on that already but not yet type of dynamic. Philippians 3, verses 20 through 21, he says this, But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. So we are saved already in that we are declared righteous. We are declared to be permanent citizens of heaven Right? Though we belong, we belong to a different country, but we are waiting in this strange and difficult and perplexing land. We are awaiting the return of our King Jesus, and we are awaiting the culmination of salvation where we too will be transformed. And then when, when Paul says that this work will be brought to completion, 
He has in mind, I think, what he prays later on in verse 10, that we would be presented to Christ as pure and blameless for the day of Christ. So that's the, that's the day of Christ's return and judgment. So that means that when, not if, but when we stand before God, because of Christ, we will be accepted. And that's, that's kind of that not yet that we're waiting for, right? So we're already saving that we're declared righteous, but we're waiting for that, for that to happen. And as we wait, we hurt, right? We still live in a body of flesh, as Paul said in Romans. We're, we're still going to mess up as we're waiting. And we still feel the pains of this world that's, that's tainted by sin. We still feel conflict and sickness and loneliness and unmet desires. We still feel the effects of our sin and our shame. We still feel death. However, it's not always going to be like this. He will bring it to completion. In Revelation chapter 21, verses 3 through 4, we get a beautiful picture of what this is going to look like. My, my challenge to you for just this verse is to try hearing it again for the first time, right? Listen to God as he describes your future. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. That is amazing. So let's, let's string all this together. So the Lord of heaven and earth sees you, sees all of you. He takes your sin, tacks it up on the cross, declares it punished, then declares you righteous. And then he says, I will one day bring you to me pure and blameless so that I may wipe away your tears and make my eternal dwelling place with you. You will be my people and I will be your God. That happens when you place your faith in Jesus. If that's not something you've done but want to or have questions about, Come talk to us after the service. Talk to Pastor Jeff or Jared or the elders or me. So I, I want to use John Bunyan's Pilgrim Pro, Pilgrim's Progress to tie up this first point. If you know the story of Christian, he goes through a lot of different very difficult uh, challenges and trials um, up until he reaches the celestial city, which is representative of, of heaven. And at one point, Christian walks into this house and is guided by a man named the Interpreter, and this house has a bunch of different rooms. Each room is designed as like this kind of allegorical scene used to teach Christian some principle that he's going to need on the road ahead to the celestial city. And he comes to this one room, and it goes like this. Then I saw in my dream that the interpreter took Christian by the hand and led him into a place where a fire was burning against a wall. Here, a man stood pouring water on it to quench it. But the fire continued to burn and even got higher and hotter. And again, Christian asked the meaning of this. And the interpreter answered, This fire is the work of grace that burns in the heart. That man who is trying to put out that fire is the devil. But you see that he cannot. And that the flame only grows stronger. And you shall in a moment see the reason for that. So he took him around to the other side of the wall where they saw a man with a jar full of oil which he continually poured into the fire, unbeknownst to the devil. And Christian said, what is the meaning of this? And the interpreter replied, this is Christ, who continually, with the oil of his grace, maintains the work already begun in the heart. By this means, regardless of the devil's best efforts, the souls of his people remain full of grace. 
that scene is just as impactful for me now as it was when I read it in college. God's salvation for you is not stopped by the enemy. God is not stopped by this world and its snares. It is not stopped by your sin. He will bring to completion what he began in you. Period. Honestly, I feel like we can just stop here and spend the rest of our time together in this week just kind of praising God for that, but I want to continue because Paul continues. This, in some ways, is honestly just, it's an outburst of praise that God would care so well for the people that he loves in Philippi. But in some senses, this is a bit of a setup for Paul's prayer coming up. So let's look at point two. What what exactly does Paul ask for in his prayer for for Christian maturity? Before we get to the heart of that, though, I want to step back and point out something that I find really, really interesting. After declaring verse 6's statement of God's sovereign preservation of the Philippians, don't you find it interesting that Paul's immediate next step is to pray and ask for the Philippians' day-to-day growth? You might even ask as to the necessity of Paul's prayer. Doesn't God already have it covered? However, in Paul's mind, there's no contradiction between God's sovereignty and our responsibility or or our prayer. We see the two, God's promised action in our volitional participation throughout Scripture time and time again, not just from Paul, but from Peter and plenty of the other authors. Both are there. We have to submit to both. We must uphold both simultaneously. In fact, seeing God's determination to bring about our salvation to completion, I feel like that should actually bring us to a more fervent prayer, shouldn't it? We know that his desire is to bring us to a greater likeness of Christ, and he will not fail. So if we know that God is for our growth, do you then feel the excitement that Paul seems to have as he begins to pray for the Philippians? For Paul, he knows that God is already passionate to bring that to bear. God's sovereignty and passion to bring about their growth, that doesn't inhibit Paul's prayers if his job's done, right? It fuels his prayer. When I was little, when my dad would catch me as a little boy from the edge of the pool, I, I knew that he would catch me, right? He had it covered. Just because I knew the outcome, did I refuse to participate? Did I refuse to have fun with him? No. I was all the more eager to jump because I knew I would land in my dad's arms. So with joy and all the strength my little legs could muster, I would leap off that, that, the edge of the pool, and of course I was right, my dad caught me. So with that in mind, with that spurring us on, God's fervent, passionate desire to bring us to maturity, let's actually look at the text in verses 9 through 11. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. You can go back to the first half of that, and we're going to spend most of our time on that. So Paul prays and asks God for our love to abound more and more. So that is that we would grow in our love for our church, right? So that's for our kids, our pastors, our singles, our families, for everyone, right? And then that would extend more broadly to our communities, to Lombard, Glen Ellen, Wheaton, to our country, to the nations, till every tribe, 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 tongue, and nation bows before the Lord and adores him that we would be people that overflow with love because we have been loved. And he prays this. He doesn't just pray for love and stop. He prays for a love that would be complemented by knowledge and all discernment. That is, that we would love well, 
that we think critically while navigating the perplexities of life today, right? All those moral conundrums. This is not just sentimentality. And when he says discernment, he's not saying total discernment, but rather breadth of, of discernment or insight, that across the moral spectrum of life, we would have clear vision to see right from wrong. I feel like we must ask ourselves, though, knowledge and discernment according to, to what standard? To whose standard? To our, to our culture's standard? That whatever feels right is right? No, I, I, I think that knowledge and discernment has to be tied, has to be bound to the authority of the word. So we are to, to abound in love, that love, increasing love, must use the word and the spirit to guide us first and foremost. So earlier, earlier I mentioned that Paul is building towards something though, right? And, and this is it. So he prays for a love that's increasing, that is abounding, excuse me, that is increasing with knowledge and all discernment. And he says this, so that you may approve what is excellent, so that you may approve what is excellent. The root idea behind the word approve in the Greek is to make critical examination of, right? To determine the purity of something or to put to the test, right? It's kind of like it's on trial. Um, it, it almost alludes to a, to a metal worker, a metallurgist, right? Who would, um, who would put a piece of gold to the test to determine its purity. So then what, well, what, are, we, what are we testing? What are we trying to figure out? Paul says that we are trying to figure out, we're trying to discern what is excellent, I spent a long time reading different commentators trying to think and pray, what the heck does that mean? What is excellent? Don Carson was incredibly helpful for me here. He argues that what is excellent, so what are we trying to discern? It's all things that would characterize mature Christian discipleship. Another way to put it would be the ability to decide the best course of action or thought in every circumstance in order to love God and to love others, to be someone that images forth Christ. He points out that this ability to discern these things is reliant upon that previous clause, right? Is reliant upon your love abounding with knowledge and breadth of insight. In fact, he argues that you cannot identify right from wrong, best versus good, without that. It's like that metallurgist trying to test the purities of gold without a crucible to melt it down. And I think this is why it's so important that our discernment is bound to Scripture, right? If we, if we try to discern the things, you know, that are best according to the criteria of the culture today, we'd end up testing and approving the wrong things. We'd essentially just approve whatever feels right or whatever feels right to you, right? It's like that metallurgist, he reaches into the crucible, takes out a chunk of lead and says, oh yeah, that's gold. An increasing love that is not guided by the word, it's not going to lead you well. We are too easily deceived without the word as a foundation. So let me, let me summarize that for you. Christian, if you want to grow into maturity, if you want to live as a citizen of heaven that you've been declared to be, Paul says that the thing you need to ask your father for is for increasing love accompanied by knowledge and discernment. This will allow you to approve what is excellent or to live rightly in all circumstances. And most importantly, as Don Carson says, to put, it's going to allow you to grow in your experience of the gospel and in your intimacy with Jesus. For that type of love, that type of love is going to help you choose Jesus over money and entertainment, others over yourself, and God's kingdom over your own glory. In a case we're tempted to workspace righteousness here, thinking that we must either save ourselves, maintain our salvation, or maybe just even just justify our salvation at the cost of Christ by, by living and loving as well as we can, right? Kind of pulling up our bootstraps. Paul reminds us that the fruit of righteousness that we so long for 
actually comes through Jesus Christ. And then God, not us, gets the glory and praise for it all. And we saw earlier, right in verse 6, undergirding the whole thing is God who began and will complete your salvation. That completion is not dependent upon how well you approve what is excellent. Dispel, dispel that anxiety and rest on the completed gospel, knowing that you now get to pursue holiness, pursue maturity, pursue being like Christ. And of course, this is no magical prayer formula, right? Rather, it just aligns our hearts with the Lord's in a humble petition to, to ask to be changed from our hearts and our minds outward. So then what do, what do, we, what do we do with this? We get to pray. We get to pray for and pursue an ever-increasing love with knowledge and discernment. So I'll, I'll say what I said before. If you desire to grow in Christian maturity, the prayer that Paul gives you is to humbly ask for your love to abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment. Your ability to approve what is excellent is going to depend on that. To decipher right from wrong, to love like Jesus is dependent upon that. So though it's by God's hand, right, that we saw earlier, it's also by your volitional action. If you lose verse 6, I think you might be crushed by verses 9 through 11, kind of Paul's prayer for basically perfection. But if you, if you lose verses 9 through 11, his prayer, you miss some of the main themes of Philippians. The ESV Study Bible put it that Paul is encouraging the Philippians to live as already established citizens of a heavenly city, growing in their commitment to serve God and one another. That includes prayer, right, as a crucial aspect of maintaining a joyful Christian life. So we pray. What should mark these prayers? Hope and confidence. God is for your growth. He is for your sanctification. He's not withholding grace, eagerly waiting for you to fail, to pounce on you with condemnation and disappointment. He is eager. He's eager to show compassion and tenderness and forgiveness. That's who he is. I'll admit that often when I pray, which is not often, um, not often as I want, about my own progress, it's typically with a defeated tone, more along the lines of, God, you help me to just not screw up too much until either you come back or I die. Paul doesn't pray like that, though. He looks at God's amazing providence and prays with gusto. May your love abound more and more. May you prove what is excellent. May you grow into who you are. Well, then what do you do when you feel defeated, when you feel tempted, when you feel tired and confused? Remember the hope with which Paul prayed. Remember that God, the initiator, began a work in you and he will bring it to completion. You can pray for strength through the Spirit to continue walking, for that is God's heartfelt desire. Your tears will one day be wiped away by our beloved and risen Savior. I think experientially, I think it's easy for us to say uh, that we feel a measure of guilt whenever we hear a sermon about things like prayer. Um, I know that's true for me, definitely. Uh, well, of course, I don't want that, right? My aim is not to guilt you into to praying more, but it's rather to make you feel that same tender excitement and hope that Paul, as a passionate father, seems to feel for his church in Philippi. My aim is for you to feel that hopeful, near-exuberant joy when you think about your future with God, both when Jesus returns, but also now, tomorrow, when you face a trial. God is for you, Christian, not against you. It's not a fruitless thing to ask God for growth in this way. And the joys and pains that God will carry us through will result in much joy and glory 
for God. We've barely scratched the surface of the joys in store for us. Sometimes when I put those cute little boys to bed at night, I'll, I'll pray for them, and this passage has, has kind of been informing my prayers for them a little bit more. It's my heartfelt desire that they would be men that stand before God, pure and blameless, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ one day. That they'd be men marked by discerning love, able to identify right from wrong. I pray that they would be marked as Christians, bought and secured by the death and resurrection of Jesus. May we, like Paul, pray and seek that for those that we love and for ourselves. So Hope Fellowship, I hope you hear God's loving invitation to you through this text in Philippians to draw ever nearer to him and to be transformed by him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for all the ways in which you care for us, for how much you love us, that you were obedient even to the death on the cross. Thank you for your preservation of us. Would you help us to pray with expectant hope as we continue to walk with you? Would you help us to pray for our love to abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that we might approve what is excellent? We are prone to wander, but your grace is sufficient. We are prone to doubt you, but you will bring to completion what you began in us. You are not one to leave things unfinished, and for that we thank you and we praise you. May we go from here more in love with you and more excited to walk with you to your praise and glory. Amen.